What's going on, guys? Michael here, Energy 360 Network by Enerco. I'm excited to be bringing you this interview with Locust Bio Energy Solutions. Before I do that, I just need to do a couple shameless plugs. First, for the 360 Digital Bow Closing Podcast. If you are not subscribed to that on iTunes, Spotify, or YouTube, please do that right now. It is the best way to stay up to date on all of your energy finance news. It is brought to you by Adam at Teen Energy and the world's greatest website, www.oilandgas360.com, which you can find the Energy 360 Network and all of the podcasts that we have done, please visit them at www.oilandgas360.com. This interview you're about to hear with Locust Bio and CEO Jonathan Rogers is absolutely tremendous. What Locust Bio is, is really they're the new generation of biosurfactants companies that are helping companies increase their oil production rate, disperse paraffin wax, clean robs and tootings and pumps. It helps with all of it. They have products to help you do all of that. Please, you can check them out at locustbioenergy.com. And I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to Stu to start this off. It's a pretty nice little conversation we've got. Uh, John, the CEO, and uh, Dan, and Dan, I'm going to go ahead and, uh, or uh, John, I'm going to go ahead and kick it over to you for a second. Let us uh, hear a little bit about uh, Locust Bio Energy Solutions. Great. Thank you, Stu. So Locust Bio Energy is, uh, is a technology startup. I've been with them about uh, just over 12 months. Before that, I was with a large oil service company called Clarion. Before that, I was a technical director of BP for nine years. So what intrigued me about uh, Locust Bioenergy was the fact that um, uh, the product that we make, so-called biosurfactants, they've been known about in the industry, mainly in technical literature for 20, 30 years, and have absolutely phenomenal properties that we always thought we could utilize for the oil and gas industry, but almost every one of these papers would say, but the problem is nobody can make them at scale. So there's a really fascinating story behind this that uh, the two gentlemen who formed Locus Fermentation Solution, which is our mother company that actually does the fermentation and production of these biosurfactants. So think of a microbrewery in the same way that you produce alcohol there, we produce biosurfactants. Uh, there's no microbes in them. It's sterile. The product looks like maple syrup but it's a super concentrated uh, product, 100% green, and it has some absolutely unique properties. So as I say, for years people said, great products, phenomenal application potential, but nobody can make them at scale. So uh, another interesting story is that the guy who's the head of our fermentation technology is Dr. Ken Allerbeck. And uh, Dr. Allerbeck ran the Soviet Union's bioweapons program back in the 90s. So he was weaponized in anthrax and smallpox, and he's one of the uh, virus experts and microbe experts in the world. So what he did was he found a way to make these biosurfactants in super concentrated form, high volume, consistent. So what Locust Bioenergy is doing is taking these products and actually applying them in the oil industry. And it's a, it's a fascinating journey. Well, with that, with that in mind, uh... I'll kind of kick it off, uh, and thank you for sharing that. Great, great background uh, for our viewers. What's your take right now uh, on the energy market? Um, you know, we have demand destruction from the coronavirus, uh, coupled with uh, the, the the remnants of a price war and oversupply uh, from OPEC, OPEC plus Saudi Russia. Uh, what, what's your take on it? And when do you think we're going to start seeing uh, a recovery? And we'll snap back quick. Right. 
Well, I really like the interview that you guys did with Bernadette Johnson a couple of weeks ago, the VP of uh, Embrus. Fantastic knowledge. And I think everything I've heard since then backs up what she said, that probably we've lost about 20 million barrels a day of uh, destruction demand. Mainly due, I think, to the fact that nobody's flying. So it's about seven and a half, eight million barrels of uh, kerosene not being used. People aren't traveling, so gasoline's come down. So I think the market today, back up to $25, is trying to get that balance between oversupply, the companies cutting in production, storage limitations. And I think people are optimistic that maybe demand and supply of the OPEC plus 10 million barrels a day cuts hold may start to balance third, fourth quarter if we don't have a reoccurrence and a spiking up again of coronavirus. So um, I think one really interesting thing that Bernadette brought up was the, the fact that uh, an unintended consequence of people shutting in production in the Permian is the fact that associated gas uh, will have been shut down with those producing wells and the natural gas wells, especially up in the Utica, Haynesville and Marcellus are actually seeing uh, quite a boom at the moment. And as you see, gas prices are up now to just under $2. And as Bernadette said, maybe expected to spike up to uh, $4 um, in the, by the end of the year. Yeah, it'd be interesting. You know, one of the things I've been contemplating is with uh, uh, some people going back to work, office buildings this summer are still going to have to fire air conditioners and servers are going to run and lights are going to be on. And you still may have, you know, a certain percentage of the workforce working from home, kind of demanding energy that normally wouldn't have been uh, in, in the residential uh, market too. So, so maybe that's good news uh, uh, for natural gas and certainly Bernadette and, and, and some others have kind of brought that up. Um, Tell me this much, uh, uh, this downturn, uh, I keep on hearing and, and reading uh, analysts like myself and consultants and, and other types of observers that energy companies are going to have to do more with less. Uh, in this downturn, how can operators change their approach to get more out of the, out of the reservoir uh, that they keep open or future wells that they drill uh, less money, higher ROIs. Yeah. Well, that's one thing about the oil and gas industry, and I think demonstrated by the shale boom, is the industry always finds a way to reduce down its costs. So I think they'll continue to do that. The, the two areas I think they'll have to address uh, is bringing down that um, operating cost or the lifting cost per barrel. But I think more importantly, getting more oil, especially from shale, uh, get more of the original oil in place out. So... A staggering fact to me is that in a typical shale reservoir, we're only taking out between eight and 12% the original oil in place. So you know, up to 90% of it is, is left in. And historically, the last few years, we would uh, meet production demand just by drilling a new well and taking eight to 12% out. What's really interesting was um, a, a guy called uh, Duncan Blue wrote yesterday in the Journal of Petroleum Technology, very interesting about uh, technology and the fact that especially a lot of the service companies have basically eliminated in this downturn a complete layer of management and most of them are involved with uh, new technology development so i think that's very interesting his estimate was that um, even if the price came back it would probably take another two years to 
set up a new technology department and probably another two years after that to be rolling out um, new technologies. So that's a double whammy. The industry needs to innovate, but uh, maybe the brain power that it's had over the last few years has certainly been taken out of the market. On a positive thing, which maybe plays to a company like us, I think they'll be forced to look at technologies that maybe they haven't looked at in depth over the last few years. Uh, obviously, I'm biased towards bias effectants, but that's one where we've had a certain uptake, but I think people will be looking at new technologies uh, like what we had that's available and that scale as a possible solution to get their cost down and production up. On, on that note, um, how, what's the comparison between biosurfactants versus synthetic or other surfactants that are being used, both in terms of efficiency uh, and cost? Right. Well, I think maybe for most of the, the, the list of the viewers, you know, what is a surfactant? Well, what a surfactant does basically will change the interaction between different fluids, so oil and water, um, oil and gas, and it'll also change the interfacial tension. So, uh, for example, if you're trying to extract oil out of a reservoir, typically the rock is oil wet. So think of the oil like a film on the rock surface, and you want to make that uh, attraction between the oil and the rock break so you can release more oil. So we use surfactants in everything that we do day to day from washing up liquid to break up grease uh, to a whole bunch of things to anti-foams. These are all types of surfactants. So what a bias surfactant is, it's, it's nature's own way of doing a lot of these uh, functions. Uh, one of the most interesting stories I think is why does a, uh, a microbe like a yeast actually make a biosurfactant. And it's really the fact that if you're a yeast, you've really got one chance of life. When you land on something, um, you've got to be able to metabolize that. So there's some properties of that that we can utilize. And an example is these products make tremendous paraffin wax dispersion products. So if you can think about a yeast that will land on, say, a spot of grease, well, what's it got to do? It's got to break that spot of grease up into like a billion particles then it coats them with the biosurfactant you know like like an m m and then it's got to bring it across the cell wall back into the yeast cell into what is an aqueous environment so it can metabolize it well so these natural biosurfactants have been developed through um, you know millennia uh, millions of years in fact uh this is what they do we can harness that so what we do is we produce those biosurfactants, again, like a microbrewery, we're making them in tens of thousands of gallons, and we can take these and use them for different applications. So if you look at what is the difference between a, a synthetic surfactant, which is typically made from a, uh, you know, ultimately from a hydrocarbon-based product, and the biosurfactant, biosurfactants are, are made naturally by yeast. The, we use canola oil and we use sugar, so 100% sustainable, 100% renewable. Well, that would be quite interesting if that was the end of it. But as I mentioned before, what we're finding is that these surfactants are used, uh, require only a fraction of what you'd use with a typical surfactant. So we've had clients send us a typical surfactant they would use, say, in a frac package. Again, you try to change the wettability, 
trying to stop the drag between oil or water and, and a surface. And they'll send us one of their products and say, can you cross that out? Well, in some of the comparisons we've done, we've needed between a 10th and a 50th of the dosage rate to get that same effect. So um, with this high volume, low cost fermentation process we've got, we can make products which can be very cost effective. They're green, they fit the ESG agenda, but they have absolutely unique products and properties. Yeah, well, it certainly doesn't hurt that uh, um, they have an ESG value to them. Uh, certainly, uh, one of the things that we've been talking about and, and one of the things I think we're seeing is that uh, as the market recovers, I think investors, uh, stakeholders are going to be interested in uh, the top performers because I think we're, we're coming to the conclusion that hydrocarbons aren't going away anytime soon. So let's, let's invest in those that are the most sustainable, those that are the, you know, using the most responsible methods uh, to extract the uh, energy, um, which is great. Um, so is, is uh, the value, is, is part of the value proposition that you're just using less product uh, per well? That's certainly one of them, and it can be more cost efficient, but there's a great, um, application I want to talk about, which is obviously the uh, unconventional and the shale has been the backbone of the boom in the States over the last few years. And I mentioned before that we're only currently taking out between eight and 12%. Now, one of the reasons, as you're probably aware, why these uh, shale reservoirs and the, uh, and the wells themselves, they start off high and the peak comes down very quickly. They basically um, decline rate is, is phenomenal. And part of that is that um, the porosity of these shale reservoirs is, is, is unbelievably low. If you um, go down to the nano size, some of the Wolfkamp pore sizes, this is the you know, small pores where the hydrocarbon is deposited, they can be somewhere between three and 20 nanometers. I'll put that in scale. A human hair is 75,000 nanometers, and a DNA molecule is two and a half nanometers wide. So some of the micropores and nanopores are in the shale. Obviously, that's why we frack them, but that's why the production goes down so slowly, sorry, uh, so rapidly. Now, what's interesting is some of the technologies that people are looking at for enhancing unconventional things like um, Huff and puff, putting in gas and putting in CO2 that basically can penetrate into these small pores. They cause the um, oil drop to swell and get displaced from the pore. Uh, great techniques, but very expensive from a capex point of view. Yeah. And then people have tried other things in the past, like nanoparticles. But a nanoparticle, uh, to be qualified as a nanoparticle, it can be anything up to 100 nanoparticles. That's still seen as a, you know, it's not like nanoparticles are all one size. What's very interesting is if you take a conventional surfactant on this scale, the, uh, the so-called micelle or the, or the tiny droplet that uh, is dissolved in the water, this is how it aggregates in the water, they can typically be about 100 nanometers. So they don't really get much penetrating power when the pore size of the shale is only between say three and 20. 
So this is uh, another unbelievable trait of the biosurfactant. So biosurfactant that we make has got a micelle size of 1.2 nanometers. So the droplet size that it has is half the size of the width of a DNA molecule. So we can penetrate into more of the pores. Now most of the soil is not coming out because it's trapped in there by uh, capillary pressure. So it's basically, I think, analogous to there's a, there's a drag in the same way that you get um, capillary pressures when you put a small glass tube into water. You see that the fluid actually comes up the tube. There's an attraction between the glass and the liquid itself. Well, very rough analogy, that's what happens between the attraction of the oil to the pore it's in. So anything that can break down that interfacial tension, if it can penetrate in, break down the interfacial tension, which is what the biosurfactant does, then it can actually produce more oil. Now, one of the great thing is, is that we've been doing tests on the Wolf Camp B in, um, in the Permian, where one of our customers, I'll talk about a bit later on, they had one of the first unconventional leases there, and these are actually vertical wells into the shale. So the cross-sectional area between the perfs and the actual shale was relatively small, slow. So we've been putting uh, the product, just a small pill, once a month, not even continuous treatment, down the backside of these wells, and we have stopped the decline rate from an average of like 6% per year. On a nine-well lease, we actually increased production by 19%. We believe this is exactly what's happening. We're penetrating these micropores, we're reducing the near well bore area, capillary pressure, and flowing more oil. The great thing is, which you're pleased to announce, is that that exact customer, uh, yesterday uh, during the Railroad Commission's meeting, they were the first one of our customers that uh, got approved for a 50% severance tax break. Uh, basically, our product is qualified as a tertiary EOR. Uh, about 20 years ago under Governor Perry, the uh, Texas state was trying to find ways of incentivizing people to come in this before the shale boom and uh, invest in technologies to get more oil out of the Texas place. And so our product was qualified about two years ago by the Texas Railroad Commission. And then over the past seven months, we've been gathering data from this particular customer in the Wolf Camp. And yesterday they uh, approved it so they will get uh, a tax rebate. The amazing thing about this tax rebate is it's not just on the incremental oil that's produced from this lease, it's for all the oil on that lease for 10 years. Now, for a relatively small producer, it's extremely important. But if you take some of the largest producers, you know, say one of the producers that's making, say, 345,000 barrels a day, you could probably name the producer. If they were to put this across all of their production, that's a $75 million a year tax break that they get. So this is material and they say, we're, we're giving you the, uh, the breaking news on this because say it was just approved yesterday on the May the 5th uh, commissioners meeting. Well, that, that's fantastic. I mean, it sounds like what you're describing is a lower cost product to use uh, that, that is able to recover more of the oil uh, in the shale or uh, in the reservoir uh, and uh, may qualify or certainly qualifies for uh, a pretty uh, attractive tax break. 
that's kind of a win-win-win is the way I look at it. Uh, so uh, that, that's fantastic and it's great information. Uh, tell me this much, when we, when we look at the shut-ins right now, um, is, is there a reason to be looking at uh, your product biosurfactants uh, for bringing wells back on as, a, as, a, as an agent uh, in the re-stimulation process or, or uh, in, in bringing wells back on? or even prior to shutting in, is there an advantage to using something like this to, to help mitigate um, uh, impairment when the well comes back online? Absolutely. So typically when uh, people have a managed shutdown of a well, uh, they may typically pump in a scale inhibitor or corrosion inhibitor or something to uh, so-called pickle the well, make sure when it comes back, scale and corrosion are an issue. But the other thing that can happen is, uh, I mentioned before that you typically start off with a reservoir. This is not always the case, but typically a reservoir will be oil wet and you want to water wet it typically. These are you know, just generalities. One of the problems with extended shutting is you can get uh, the reservoir naturally reverting back to a predominantly oil wet state. So when you bring that well back on again, chances are it may not come back at the same production rate. So certainly one of the things we're talking to um, both some of the distributors that um, apply our chemicals on our behalf and some of the customers is it's a relatively low cost um, solution to inject biosurfactant in. Um, it will prevent, certainly inhibit the water wetting, of, sorry, the oil wetting effect and the reversal of that um, wettability. But the great thing also is if we lock in we know when we do one of our treatments, if we lock the well in for up to seven days, then we get better penetration into this new wellbore area. We're liberating more oil, we're reducing the viscosity, we're reducing the capillary pressure, and we often see a production boost. So it'll be interesting when some of these wells come back on to see whether they've got a sustained production boost. And one of the most interesting things about biosurfactants as opposed to normal surfactants is typically, if you take something like a, an alcohol ethoxylate, which is a standard industry surfactant, they typically need about, say, 700 ppm to, to have an effect, to have any effect on changing this wettability into facial tension. Some of our products, our biosurfactants, can do this at very low rates. Also, a typical surfactant that we use, like an alcohol ethoxylate, don't really stick or get retained or absorb onto the minerals in the reservoir. What we're finding in lab tests is, and this is validating what we're seeing in the field, is up to 50% of the bias effect it gets absorbed onto kaolinite and silica and alumina. And what we get is we get a slow release. So the fact that our products can be effective at like 15, 10 ppm, they can still have this effect of water wetting the, the reservoir, plus the fact that we're retained, what we see is that you know, up to like six months after we put in just one single treatment, we can see this effect being maintained. So it's basically like a slow release leaching off of the product as it comes back. So on some applications where we uh, put in one batch treatment, by measuring the uh, interfacial tension of the fluids coming back, we can tell we've got surfactant that's staying active and being released many months after we've done the treatment. So. It's, it's going to be extremely interesting we open up some of these wells and see what the, uh, the effect is. Yeah, you know, um, I guess what person within an ENP company uh, 
should should be looking at this as a solution uh, in, for future wells, but also uh, as they're as they're evaluating shut-ins, as they're trying to ma manage that, and then ultimately bring wells back online. Is it the reservoir engineer? Is it uh, who who is it within the energy company? I think everyone's got to be involved in it. Obviously, the the reservoir is the uh, is the cash cow for the company, so people want to make sure there's going to be no harm done. Uh, and I think we can demonstrate that there's, there's industry literature about using normal surfactants. See, there's nothing in our product that would um, would have an ill effect. But it's everyone from the operations manager to you know the production superintendent, uh, the reservoir, the whole team uh, really should be involved in the decision. Um, but it's a pretty low risk um, and potentially high high ROI to put this in to shut the well in. Again, it's maybe an extension of the typical package they put in to so-called pickle the well. Yeah, gotcha. Hey, uh, that is very cool. Uh, we got, we're just about out of time. And, you know, guys, I really enjoyed learning uh, about uh, all of this kind of stuff. And the fact that, John, uh, the Locust Bio products uh, are ESG and you get the tax break. Phenomenal. Uh, I mean, that, this is pretty cool. Uh, any last thoughts, John? And then I'll go to uh, Dan for any last thoughts. So I think it's um, it's unique. Typically, I've been in the oil business over 30 years, and, and historically, green used to mean that somehow you're compromised on performance. And uh, we see a lot of opportunities, places like Norway, you may know, every two or three years, they're, they're forced by the government to go out and see if there's a greener alternative to the production chemicals they use. And, you know, I've been involved both sides of the fence, oil service companies on oil field. And I would say that, that, that typically green meant that uh, you were somehow compromising performance. So what I've tried to focus on here on this is, is, the, is the performance aspect of it. The fact that it's green is almost gravy on top, but it's not only green, but it's sustainable. And there's something else also is the, the uh, oil field service industry uh, they may indirectly benefit from the fact that when oil prices are low, eventually the products that they buy, which are oil-based, their prices come down. And so maybe their margins uh, stay up longer, even during the lower oil prices, because they're getting the lower oil material prices. But the big kick comes and the pain comes when the price of oil starts going up again, and the oil companies just basically refuse to have any price increases. We saw that when we came out of 2016. But one great thing about our bias surfactants and bias surfactants in general is we're agnostic to the oil price. Uh, typically, the canola oil price and the sugar price are not linked to oil. So we think that um, customers and opportunities that we get in the downturn will be still very, very competitive. In fact, even more competitive when the oil price comes up and the raw materials for the traditional competitive products uh, rises with it. Yeah, and I'll just wrap up with uh, the comment that Again, uh, when we see low commodity prices, and I think it's going to be an environment where, uh, like we said in the opening, uh, the energy industry has an incredible ability to kind of continue to refine the process uh, to lower cost uh, and extract more out of the money that we're spending drilling the well. Uh, this certainly seems like a relatively easy solution to implement. Uh, it's just replacing, you know, uh, a, a product with another one that just does better. 
Um, and so, uh, great idea. I certainly hope that uh, uh, it plays out well um, to help the energy industry compete at lower cost. Well, thank you. I would love for any of your uh, viewers, any questions, please contact me. Uh, I would be uh, delighted to answer the questions or explain about the tax break. Oh, yeah. absolutely. I believe uh, you'll probably be getting a lot of calls on that. And uh, we will have all of the comments and uh, contact information for everyone in the show notes. So thank you.